Yeah, that and uh, just for however long it took to uh, write and be in the Old Testament era, they were always looking forward to Christ. And um, the last 2000 years, we know who that person is that they've been pointing to forward in the Old Testament. So I think to be grateful for that, that... Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Real quick before we begin this episode, listen to the end for updates on our Santa Ana Reformed Church Plant efforts and our upcoming Bible study on the Book of Judges. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. We are on episode 28 of Promises and Fulfillments. This is our season where we have been walking through episode per chapter of the Covenant Theology book published by Crossway and written by faculty at Reformed Theological Seminary. And if you've been following season three Promises and Fulfillments with us, you know that we've had some amazing guests come on um, that have both been either authors of the particular chapter we're talking about or other, other guests that we already know that we've brought on and helped us walk through this book. So we will uh, discuss this chapter afterward. It's Why Covenant Theology, and it's written by Kevin DeYoung in, in this book. So we're going to be doing kind of a nice uh, wrapping up the season here and talking about, you know, just the book in itself and, and summarizing what uh, Why Covenant Theology. And so if you guys go to our show notes after this episode, you'll find a link to Crossway. That's the publisher. And you can buy this book for yourself. And then you could also find some other helpful links like the Society of Reformed Podcasters. That is a group of like-minded reformed podcasts. And we are one of those podcasts in that group. And you can see other or listen to other podcasts in that group that you'll probably enjoy as well. There's also a local church finder link where you can type in your zip code and find the closest church near you. There's a few other links. And we will, uh, is including maybe a link to uh, viewing this episode on YouTube. That's right. Yep. And then also, if you want to be what we call a bridge builder (laughs) and be a sponsor of our show, click that link and find out how you can become one of our bridge builders. Yep. So we'll jump into this episode. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing good. Yeah. I'm excited to, to wrap up this season. It's been, it's been, it's been a season. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll keep it at that. It's, it's been about six months long. Uh, it's weird always like when you and I, when we plan these out a little, like far, we planned this one out maybe eight months ago, maybe seven months ago, whenever it was before the summer. And it's weird being at the end of the season, being at the end of that planning. It's like, oh my gosh, where the heck did the time go? Yeah, it's been a journey, journey of edification and, um, and if nothing else, a journey of trying to schedule each episode. Which is- <laughs> That's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If I could, 
if any of you guys, and I know some of you have either talked to us, we've seen your posts on Twitter or Instagram um, about starting your own podcast. It's, I think it's less so like the preparation for episodes. That's the fun part. Um, preparing for it, it, it. I guess it's hard in a sense, but like reading the books is fun. Um, yeah. Talking to these guys is like, that's the fun part. It's the scheduling. That's the hardest by far. Um, whether it be like, if you have two people on, like we do, it's trying to make sure that our schedules line up. And then when you add another person in the mixed who has a very different schedule, having their schedules line up. And if you guys watched or listened to our, our, uh, one that was, was, uh, two Saturdays ago, where we had five people on the same show. Those are, those are something else talking to assistants, talking to the professors, one of them was the president of the seminary. So yeah, it's, but it's, uh, it's all for it's all for the cause of bridging the gaps. We we do it because we love it. We do it because we, we want to see the, the the gap bridge. And if if nobody else is doing it, then why not us? So it's been yeah. it's been it's been fun doing this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think if you're passionate or zealous for anything, I guess this the the Bible and Christianity and God and is all uh, worth doing it for building the kingdom of God. And um, yeah. that's why, even though it's really hard work, it's worth, it's work worth doing. And so yeah. it's, it's fun. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll have a, we'll have an actual recap of season three yeah. and then a, um, a preview of what we're doing for season four um, next week. So we'll, we'll kind of give more updates on like how the season went and, yeah. Um, how we're growing and kind of what we're looking towards. We'll do that next time. So you guys kind of have that to look forward to, but this mm-hmm. one, we're kind of wrapping it up and saying um, we just went through six months of the biblical, the historical and the theological collateral foundations of covenant theology. We, we went through all this. Now we're asking the question that Kevin DeYoung answered. Why are we covenant theologians? Why is this? Yeah. Why is this so important for how we see the Bible? Not how we structure the Bible, but how we, how we understand how the Bible itself is already structured. Yeah. As the chapter is called why covenant theology. And so he, to, to peel the onion back more on that, the deeper question too is why is this theme so important in scripture? Why does it matter in the Christian life? And he, he goes on to start this chapter and this, this is a very short chapter. It's technically maybe not even a chapter It's afterward. It's, you could yep. take probably a good 20 minutes and give this to somebody. And it really sums up the book very nicely. Mm-hmm. And it's a good way to put the bow. I mean, that's good Christmas terminology right now. We're getting used <laughs> to right. I, yeah. wrapping presents and whatnot. And there's a, it's putting a bow on the end of this book and just saying, okay, this is what we're now. This is practically how you can wrap it all up and live with it and walk, walk forward with it. Yeah. Yeah. And if, so I'm, I'm assuming some of you are wondering, when we posted on Twitter, we originally had Michael Horton as, the, as our guest. And so we actually originally, originally, maybe a month or so ago, confirmed with his assistant. But either A, like communication, or B, plans fell through. If you know Dr. Horton, like I know Dr. Horton, he balances a bunch of things in his hands. And so he's, got, he's restarting White Horse Inn. So my assumption is that taking a lot of his time? And so we just, we couldn't get back into contact to confirm a time, but we have something pretty cool. If it works the way we think it's going to work, we have something pretty school, pretty cool scheduled for at the end of this episode. And we're not going to let you know what that is until right at the end of what we're doing. Hopefully we can get this stuff done. So 
keep your fingers, keep your fingers crossed. But all that to say, if you're like, oh, I saw your post and we're going to see Michael Horton, we might still have people who are like Michael Horton and we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens. But, but yeah, this is, this is a great introduction. And Dr. Horton actually wrote a book on covenant theology, God, God mm-hmm. of promise, um, which is why we wanted to have him on talking about this. Kevin DeYoung has also written a bunch on, on um, covenant theology as well, but mm-hmm. it's, but it's, yeah, it's, I think kind of in distinction and, and not talking down to our dispensational brothers and sisters. Um, and we had Dr. Van Drunen on to talk about dispensationalism uh, on uh, about a month ago. Um, but there are two very different ways of putting scripture together. And mm-hmm. maybe if I can be, if I can be kind of brutally honest, I think covenant theology is like the easier way it's like, instead of thinking of all these like different structures and the parallelism of the church in Israel and, how is the rapture going to occur? Covenant theology is, is a very simple way of approaching the Bible. And I think it's, it's a very easy way to approach somebody who doesn't know the Bible and say, hey, here's these three covenants that structure how we see the Bible. And you're either, uh, you're either in the covenant of grace or you're in the covenant of works, both of those being planned from eternity past. So it's, it's kind of an easy way to introduce people to the structure of the Bible without having to go into like all these different designs within the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we see uh, two, but actually, technically, three overarching yep. covenants yep. that Kevin DeYoung, I mean, we've, the two are pretty easy to remember works and grace, but he talks about yep. redemption, too. Yep. But um, I think the biggest difference, too, um, is that even us as uh, Reformed Covenant theologians, we technically have the verbiage of dispensation. Totally, yeah. Um, yeah, and how we look at those is we more interpret those as under the covenant of grace as administrations. Yep. Um, because they are have an over an underlining theme of still being a covenant of grace, um, just different through different um, covenantal administrations. Yeah. Yeah, if we use and, kind of the, the Clarkian phrase for that stuff. Yeah, so um, I don't want to, you know, get too deep in the weeds about, you know, other forms of thought and maybe uh, misquote them or totally. anything like that. I, th- I think I kind of like to, what I like to do, because um, I'm still learning, and it's just I'm not, learning. I'm the- I have it all down. <laughs> well you'll be hu- you'll be humbled quickly then <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah Nick's still learning this i'm i'm basically I'm, I'm basically already there so yeah you guys ask me all the questions you want i have all the answers okay in case you guys are tuning in for the very first time uh peter's somewhat sarcastic and <laughs> exactly, so he yeah. uh yeah he uh but yeah we know we know that we're uh we're just trying to um do the best we can explaining the reformed yeah, a covenantal book. Yeah, there's a there's a phrase doctrines. that Michael Horton uses, Dr. Horton uses, and he, he calls us pilgrims on the way. We're still mm. pilgrims who are still learning, still trekking through this life, and we're on the way. We're we're heading towards a a goal, but we are still pilgrims. We're still learning. Yeah, and so uh, in the beginning of this chapter, I like how I like how it's a really concise chapter. Again, if you really want to take the time yeah. to read, it, it might be about twenty minutes, but. Um, he starts off just with the simple definition, which we all appreciate. And mm-hmm. in the simplest of terms, he talks about a covenant is a contract. So if you're talking to an unbeliever or someone just even a believer, but they're having a hard time understanding the idea of covenants, yeah. um, just, you know, it's just 
basically it's an agreement between two or more parties. It's a contract. The bet, the best way to think of it in our earthly terms is a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're married or even if you've ever, uh, even smaller things, even if you've bought a car mm-hmm. or getting a proof for a mortgage loan or, or uh, anything, to be like honest, that. like your work, most of us work or know people who work and the employer hands you a contract for employment. He expects or she expects certain things from you and you in turn provide services, you provide expertise, whatever it may be. So there's contracts all in, in all of life. So it's, even if it's not marriage, if you're, if you're single, then you can think of, Oh, I work mm-hmm. or I go to school. School is the same thing where you're handed an assignment. So you're given, okay, these are the things I expect you to do. And you're expected to produce something on your side as well. Exactly. You know, and, and, uh, but not to downplay what it is in the Bible, totally. it's much more than that in the yeah. Bible because yep. it's between God, our creator. Yeah. Um, and he is trying to communicate to us as creation. Yeah. And- yeah. So it's like you can use a broad definition for it, which is, yeah, if you think of covenant in, in general, it's a contract between two parties. But as you look through the various covenants of scripture, that we do have to not redefine, we have to define more specifically how these are played out throughout scripture. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a good thing to underline in here. It establishes stipulations, promises, guarantees, blessings, and threatens yep. curses. Yeah. So just like with any covenant, it wouldn't be a covenant if there wasn't um, something legally in there. If you broke it, something would happen. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And that's, and so we can we can further define, and he talks about this a little bit in his chapter. We can use um, fairly easy, simple language. Um, so not we don't dumb down the language. We just use simpler ling- language to get the same concept across. If you think of the covenant of works, is a conditional covenant. It requires something of the party that God makes it with. So God tells us in the covenant of works, do this and live. When He told Adam in the garden, do not eat of this tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And also part of the covenant work, covenant of works was telling him, have dominion over the land, be fruitful and multiply. So both of those were part of it, both the negative and also the positive were part of it. But they're also they're telling Adam to do something. Same thing we see in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, when the, the covenant renewal in Exodus 24 and then Joshua 24, the Lord tells Moses, the Moses tells the people, do these commandments and the people say, okay, we will do these commandments fully. And then Moses is like, are you sure about that? And the Israelites, as we know, don't do it. And just like, we don't do it. And that's distinguished. We have to distinguish our language with this from Abraham with the distinguishing from part of the, uh, the, the Davidic covenant from part of the Noahic covenants. And so as you guys heard throughout the season, but we can say with the covenant of works, essentially it's, do this and live. It's do something. You have a responsibility on yourself. So responsibility stipulations lay upon you. It's like a work contract. If you don't do this, you're going to be, there's going to be some sort of consequence laid upon you. And then for the covenant of grace, there is no consequence laid upon you. There is no do this and live. It is no done. Therefore live. It Uh is, you have had this done for you as Abraham was told your seed will be multiplied across the land. The Lord makes a covenant with him in Exodus or in Genesis 15. He passes through the torches. And then in the, in the covenant of redemption, they're planning this out from eternity past. So yeah, it's 
we can use this language and it's, you can kind of like, in a very simple way, say covenant works, do this and live, kind of covenant of grace, done, therefore live. And covenant redemption is we are planning this in eternity past to make sure those who are placed in the covenant of grace under, in Christ will surely live. And those who are placed in the covenant of works shall surely die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, um, if you don't see covenants in the Bible or don't believe in covenant theology, uh, I challenge you to lovingly, oh, dang, challenge, challenge. <laughs> lovingly challenge you to maybe explain how do you interpret uh, the fall of Adam? Like, yeah. how do you, how do you explain where we are in sin based on Adam's disobedience and what that did is a severed relationship with God, the creator. Yeah. Like, how do you explain what before the fall, how he in scripture uh, had a perfect relationship with God. And then after the fall was kicked out of Eden and how immediately after that, through the rest of the Bible, God throughout history has redeeming his people and yeah. working through how to worship him. And, and that in, in through that, those administrations of covenant of grace, I sure hope someone takes you up on that offer. Well, we already have, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's, there's fellow Christians out there that don't believe in covenant. Theology, no, yeah. That's kind of what I mean. Maybe if I could be, so Nick's Twitter More is, specific. N, is NR fully. So if you guys are like, no, nah, I don't believe this stuff. Go, go tweet at Nick and say, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong and we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> So now your now your now your Twitter handle is out for the whole our whole audience the whole world to see. Oh, there we go. Hey, I mean, um, I because I don't have a Twitter handle, so they can't talk to me. Or they could just do our our normal Twitter account. But the point is, is I think that I'm maybe hoping... I'm just in like a combative mood right now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, just so you guys know, the 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 Twitter handle. Tech is is technically from both of us. So if you see posts yeah. on Twitter from Guilt Grace Gratitude, it, it could be from Peter or myself. You'll never know. But I'd say most of the time it's from you. Probably. But yeah. I don't know. Maybe they could tell easier when it's from me, but that's a different <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But that's right. No, yeah. So that's and I <coughs> I like that. It's, we we um we have to have some way of looking at scripture. Everyone has a lens. Everyone has, has something coming into scripture. And it's whether or not your lens coming into scripture is scripture's lens. Is this lens that scripture is telling you, view redemptive history, view the gospel throughout Genesis to Revelation, view it this way. And our understanding, again, our, our, our most faithful interpretation of scripture is scripture tells us to view it covenantally. Scripture tells us to view it in terms of God's covenant with man. And so if you're coming into scripture and you don't see covenantally and you say, no, I just, I see the Bible for the Bible. And I just read the Bible as myself. And, and hopefully I have a good interpretation is we're still going to have some sort of bias coming into the Bible. And it's, is our bias being checked against the Bible? And if it's, if we're continually reforming, we're going to form our lens around scripture and our best interpretation. We think this has been, 
corroborated over the last 2000 years. If you guys, are, as, as you guys have heard throughout this podcast, throughout the season is we do think it's the most faithful interpretation is covenantal uh, interpretation covenants, both grace works and redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, what Michael Horton has said um, is that covenants are the architectonic structure of the Bible yeah. It's really kind of the framework underneath what's really obvious and visible that we just see, but it's, it doesn't need to say, Hey guys, I'm going to talk about a covenant here and then just list it out. A lot of yeah. times it's embedded in scripture and it does take a good and necessary consequence uh, or, or interpretation to yep. understand that it is talking about covenants and sometimes the bible does mention covenants where it's kind of easy to uh point out some scripture and sometimes it's not as clear but we have other scripture pointing back to that time saying that it was a covenant going on and then even if it doesn't do that we know based on how god is communicating to uh people in the bible Mm -hmm. uh that it is covenantal yeah and that's And that's important to keep in mind, especially not saying it's less so with the New Testament, with with uh, the scripture we have originally written in Greek in in the first century context. But it was much more the case kind of in the 15th to 5th century B.C. in the Old Testament around that time frame where you read a lot of narratives. There's a lot of poems. There's a lot of um, prose and prose is effectively narrative. There's a lot of law in it. But if you read it, it's it's not like I think the general understanding or the general kind of uh, yeah general understanding of scripture kind of in the evangelical church is the Bible is there to give us like ways to live like um, moral ways of living things to do things precepts to believe and all that stuff where yes it's part of it but the the Old Testament scriptures specifically and especially don't really make quote unquote morals known up front. They don't say, okay, when David killed Uriah, Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's husband, that was wrong. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say David's killing of Uriah was wrong. How it comes across is when Nathan, the prophet comes to him, he tells him a story and he at the end says, what would you do to this man? And David's like, I'm going to kill him. And he's, he's worthy of all these consequences. And then Nathan's like, you are that man. And then David's like, oh my gosh, that, that actually, that actually was me. <clears throat> and so when we read this, and it's the same as when we read the covenants in scripture, it doesn't, it's not up front, but how they wrote at this time was, it was a structured piece. They're not going to tell you up front. Okay. What we're doing right now with Abraham, what we're doing right now with David, what we're doing right now with Adam or Noah or with Moses, that's a covenant. They won't, they're not just going to like finish a, a paragraph and say, okay, now what I was talking about right there, that's a covenant. That tends to be more of like a modern understanding of history where we like, we really set our sources and we say, okay, now this is what I'm talking about. This is what I want you to get from this paragraph where theirs is a little bit more of a narrative approach. They're not going to tell you upfront what it is. And so we have to be good readers of scripture, not reading it necessarily how we would read a 21st century text. We mm-hmm. have to kind of get into their mind. We have to look at the a surrounding text, which again, which is the stuff we went over in the season and say, okay, <clears throat> how would a, 10th century BC Israelites have heard and understood the scripture. And again, our best interpretation is they would have seen this covenantally, even though yeah, again, and- it's like you said, it's not up front right in front of the page, you're not labeling it. 
That's mm-hmm. that is that is the air they breathe, the water they swim in. Yep. And the, and the, some of the same case could be made for a term like the Trinity in the yep. Bible. It's yep. never. I mean, it covenants is explained even more, and we hold as Christians. Trinity is essential to our belief and faith yep. in in God. That's that's the essence of the God that we know and believe yeah. in is, yeah. is Trinitarian. But you don't go through the Bible and, and see that the word Trinity written all over the place. But we know through understanding the character of God and how he works as the Father, Son, and Spirit, he is a Trinity, a Trinitarian yeah. God. And yeah. so I think very few Christians would argue on that. Um, and so yep. it, that's kind of makes it interesting, at least humbly in my position, just it makes it interesting uh, where there's a lot of debate on covenantal and that that's an argument is it's um, less of even an argument than the, the, the language of Trinity. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I know that, that that makes sense. That's it's, it's a helpful kind of corrective on <laughs> when reading. <clears throat> Not just what are we reading, but how are we reading? We have to we have to check even our own reading skills and understand. Okay, what kind of document are we reading? When is this from? Who are they writing to? Who's writing? Where does this fall within scripture? <clears throat> There's a lot of stuff to keep in mind with this, and it could be really hard. But the more we kind of dig into this, like you said, the more fruitful it is for our own life, for our own ministry, for our understanding of of who God is. And we've done this, like you said, with the Trinity. We've done this with the two natures of Christ, where it doesn't say Christ had two natures in parts of Ephesians or parts of Galatians. We get it from Philippians. We get it from language from he took on the form of a servant. We get it from a lot of these things. Same thing with Trinity and same thing with covenant. Yeah, and I think think, uh, if one word strikes me the most out of uh, learning more about covenant theology, and uh, this book has been very influential for me um is the word assurance Mm. i think just knowing it's a legal contract from Mm. god our creator to say hey if i break this covenant i'm making with you i'm no longer myself i'm no longer god and guess what i can't do that like so it gives me assurance like, wow, my justification is rock solid. It's as rock solid as the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, which is the most rock solid thing in the universe. And so yeah. I'm like, wow, my assurance through understanding the scope of covenant theology, like you said earlier, is kind of a, it's almost an, um, in a way easier to grasp hmm. yeah. to, to be like, hey, you're either you're either in works in Adam and we all are at birth or earthly birth or you're in Christ and born again. So either, either in your flesh or you're in the spirit, you're either in works or you're in grace and you're, it's either one or the other. And once you're in grace, um, there's no coming out of it. If you're legitimately in grace and that's where some of the conversation goes, because you could be part of the covenantal community. Yeah. Um, there's a deeper layer because you could be part of the, you could be baptized into the covenant community. Yep. Just like in the old Testament, you're circumcised. Is it uh, Israelite? Yep. But you still might not be uh, uh, a true son of Abraham Yeah. or uh, born again in Christ. Yeah. Which is exactly what Paul says in Romans nine through 11. And so that tends to be like the big election chapter 
we don't realize like it's actually an assurance chapter. It says that, yes, we've been, we've been baptized. We've been called, we've been regenerated, all that stuff from Romans, um, Romans eight, that golden chain of redemption, that, that golden chain of salvation, that those who are called, they're justified. Those who are justified are glorified. Those who are glorified. We are the ones who are entered into the heavenly realm. And it's a sure fact that if you've been justified, this is sure of you. It's not, it's, it's, um, it's like you said, it's interesting <clears throat> that kind of the, the contractual, the heavy, like judicial law aspects of covenant theology gets downplayed so often. Like, Oh no, no, no. The Bible is not a, it's not a contract. It's a relationship as man. A contract is sure. A relationship, not all that sure. A relationship can vacillate. It can change moment to moment. If you're, if you gotta, if you, if you are right now, if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or you want to have a boyfriend or girl or girlfriend, I'm sure you're feeling that right now. You're like, man, this relationship can change tomorrow. But if you have a contract, that can't change. If you have the down payment of the spirits from well, we see that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that down payment can't change. That is the down payment that the heavenly glory coming for you is sure. And mm-hmm. so, like you said, it's it's so interesting and almost like maybe if I can use a weird, like big words, it's flabbergasting. It's it's uh how on earth would you not want this to be a contract? Would you not want your your heavenly reality to be sealed by law saying, no, he's mine. And he doesn't look at himself to find assurance. He looks outside himself, which if you guys listened to last week's episode with uh, with Adriel Sanchez talking about covenant assurance, he just drilled this in for 50 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, it's unconditional love and security and you are grafted into his family once you're an adopted son and an heir with christ there's there's nothing that can undo that yep and the only thing that would i don't even want to say undo because there's nothing that can undo it but yeah you hear about people saying they fell away from the faith or they slipped away well they were never in it in the first place yep um, there's lots of scripture to, to talk about that, but I think that gets kind of confusing. Yeah, first on three is the big one. First on mm-hmm. two and three. Yeah, they were of us, but not with us. Mm-hmm. And even the parable about uh, the the gardener the with the, yep. the seeds. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So um, we could talk about that more in one of our other episodes, but I think just to break this down, uh, Kevin DeYoung did a I mean, he did the hard work for us, like all these chapters. <laughs> yep. I mean, he said the three covenants, covenant of works, yep. covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. Now, they're slightly out of order because yeah. covenant of redemption would technically be the very first one. Yep, yep. Um, and yeah, then he co- talks yeah, about, you get covenant of redemption, then you get covenant of works, and then you get yep. covenant of grace. Yep. So he kind of does it opposite. Which he might have done that in a way, I'm just guessing, uh, because... Once you understand covenant of grace and him explain it, then you're like, mm. okay, now he understands what in covenant of redemption he was, a, he was already applying and planning covenant. Yeah, true, grace. true. So maybe if he would have, it would have probably felt too jumpy to, to explain covenant of grace through the covenant of redemption that, hey, by the way, we're planning, planning this. Yeah. Then it's covenant of works. Yeah. And then going back to grace. So <clears throat> you finally get what they plan. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, those yeah, those are the three 
covenantal admit or not administrations the three covenants we see in scripture yeah and again like you said we don't see the words themselves in scripture but we see the concepts we see covenant works in genesis 3 and genesis 1 we see also the covenant of grace in genesis 3 15 that proto evangelicum which just means the first gospel so genesis 3 15 he will or talking to the woman the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpents while crushing the head with the heel of the the savior will be will be bruised but we also see the cover of redemption which is at least through the gospel of john it really 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 vividly in john 17 him <laughs> talking to the father and saying all that you have given to me i have not lost that sure sounds like they got a contract, uh, a um, a relationship between the father and the specific towards the salvation of his people. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. what you're saying is that those are three covenants. Well, we not we may not see the exact wording, we see the concepts. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to talk about one covenant of grace, and this section is really cool because yep. he clarifies that um, yes, the old covenant. Old Testament is called that for a reason. However, it is the same covenant of grace. Yep. Since uh, Genesis three fifteen. Yep. That yeah. we see in the New Covenant. Yeah, and, and that's this is where we um, we had <coughs> Dr. Clark on to talk about the difference and a huge difference that tends to be misconstrued or misunderstood. And so maybe we can provide a, a brief little summary: is the difference between substance and administration. So the substance of the covenant of grace stays the same throughout. So it's actually Christ being promised in Genesis 3.15 because Paul tells us that in Galatians 3. He interprets what is given to Abraham, what's given before Abraham, as that seed talked about in Abraham and talked about before, which the Abrahamic covenant was pointing backwards to, saying that seed was Christ. So the substance was there. The administration is different. That's the two, those are the two big terms. So we see Christ, the substance of Christ from Genesis all the way to Revelation, though he's administered differently. So it is ministered in Genesis 3.15 in a seed form. It grows slightly with Abraham. It grows even more with David. It grows even more with Jeremiah and the new covenants. And we see it in full bloom in the New Testament. So we have to keep those two terms really well established. If we say, no, he's... There, the substance of Christ is not actually there, but the administration is there. Then how do we find continuity between the two testaments? How do we know what is what Jesus talks about in Luke 24 saying all of scripture, the law, prophets, and the writings, all of them point to me. How can Paul in Galatians 3 and Ephesians and Philippians and everywhere look at the Old Testament and not just say, oh, Christ is pointed towards, but no, he's saying, no, that seed was Christ. Christ was there. Christ was promised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah let that soak in <laughs> guys uh and Sorry, I, of, I get i get a little preachy on this stuff it's 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 like you said it's just it's either <clears throat> misunderstood or it's just not understood that how do we see christ in all of scripture because when mm-hmm. we see christ in all of scripture we know that the old testament saints were presented christ and they truly believed in christ we believe yeah. in the same christ that abraham believed in we believe yep. in the same Christ that David was justified by. And you also look at their lives. We're, we're going through an Oceanside right now. We're going through Genesis. Genesis 15, the covenant is cut with Abraham, where the torches go through the two halves of the severed um, animals. 
showing that God is the one, that Jesus is the one who takes on the stipulations of the covenants, all the curses of the covenants. What happens in Genesis 15, or Genesis 16, the very next chapter after Genesis 15, Abraham sins right after given the covenants. And so it's, it should be his sin should be our assurance that he yeah. was presented Christ truly grafted in the Christ in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 in Genesis 16. He sins by taking Hagar, Sarah's concubine or the concubine under Sarah in a very similar way that Adam takes of the fruit of the tree of, um, of, um, of knowledge that Eve tempts him with. But then in Genesis 17, right after Abraham sins, Genesis 17, the covenant sign of circumcision is given to him. So he comes right back in grace, presents Christ all over again and saying, you are in Christ. Yes, you sin, but the, your sin has been atoned for by Christ himself. That's, yeah. that's why this covenant theology stuff is just incredible. It's, it's, we look at these quote unquote characters through scripture who lived, I, I guess, godly lives, but in many more ways, lived very sinful lives, yet yeah. they were justified. Yeah, it's not like a, sanctification is not this like big trajectory that's yeah, just smooth exactly. and shooting up. It's very like, so once you're grafted into uh, God's family, mm -hmm. uh, you you have assurance through that with, with what <clears throat> happened with Abraham, knowing that yeah, you could still slip up a little and still be under the covenant of grace. Yeah, and that's now, and that's why we we differentiate with the covenant of like the the different administrations of the covenant of grace because even the covenant yeah. of works is under the administration of the covenant of grace. They're two separate covenants. No question yeah. about it. But the covenant of works serves the covenant of grace. It yeah, points that's towards the savior to come. That's a good point because he even uh, when you first read that in this chapter, you're kind of like, what did I read that right? Because it says uh, he says God to enter into any kind of agreement with man, even one based on works was an act of grace under yeah. the covenant of works section. So even OK, so it goes back to the whole redemption, covenant redemption thing for him to even want to create us and have a relationship with us in the first place is grace. Yeah, he's, I, I, in a, I guess in a sense, you can call it grace. And maybe if you're using grace in a very broad, broad way yeah. where he didn't have to do it. But if we're talking right. about grace in a technical way of undeserved merit, then that comes in right after they sin. And in Genesis 3.15, he says, no, I, I know you've sinned, but I'm going to atone for your sin. And it's going to come through the woman's seed. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's helpful seeing these distinctions in this administration because we looked at even the law given to uh, to Adam and then the law re-given to Israel in very much similar way to Adam, it was not just to condemn. Yes, it was to condemn, but the condemnation was to point them to Christ to come and say, there is one who's coming in the sacrificial system that's instituted right after Exodus 20 um, through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's supposed to point them to, yeah, you have sinned, but look where your sin points to. Don't let it point to yourself. That's the covenant of works. Don't let it point to what can I do to atone for my sin? Because if you stop there, you can't do anything. But if you look towards Christ presented in the covenant of works, very truly, and then what we'll talk about as well is it's not just the covenant of works 
plays into the covenant of grace, but the covenant of grace is actually the covenant of works fulfilled. It is Christ taking on the covenant of works, taking on the obligation, taking on the burden of the law, and says, though my people have failed consistently and perpetually, I will take on the burden of the law. I will obey on their behalf and perfectly on their behalf. And not only that, I will give them the record of having obeyed the covenant of law or the covenant of works and give them obedience and righteousness as if they had done the very same thing that I had done, which is why you need these various covenants because it shows us precisely what we fell under and precisely who our righteousness comes from. Yep. That's why as a Christian, it's so important to know when you do sin, yeah, remember I underlined that as a Christian. So you're already a Christian. You're already under the covenant. Not, yeah, not if you do, but when you do. When you do sin, to not navel gaze. Don't don't look at yourself mm-hmm. and try to figure out how you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps because yep. you can't. Because we're not talking about uh, an oopsie. We're talking about a cosmic kind <laughs> of yeah. uh, disobedience to yep. our creator. So yeah, if we have an we, infinite God, we have an infinite um an infinite sin an infinite infraction against an infinite god yeah so what you need to do is take your eyes off yourself and look to christ so he he nailed your sins to the cross and so that is where your old man died yep. two thousand yeah. years ago even so you could be <laughs> maybe i could be controversial this is not actually gonna be controversial but kind of controversial if you're you're kind of grew up like me or Nick and kind of the evangelical broad church. And you're told at, at the end of every church service, like, go pray more, go read your Bible more, go have more quiet time and go pursue more and then try to get closer to Jesus. None of that works. That's not how this works. What does work is you are engrafted by Christ. You will, you profess your sin. You say, Lord, I am a sinner. I've fallen under your law and I cannot do your law. Christ takes you, gives you the spirit, gives you his obedience, gives you his righteousness. That gives you the desire to Bible read. That gives you the desire to pray. But you don't do that to get closer to Christ. You don't do that to get more within Christ's fellowship because you're already perfectly within his fellowship. And that's why, again, these covenantal administrations are so crucial for us to get rights. Because when we get these right, we know, like our podcast is named, we know where our gratitude comes from. Our gratitude doesn't earn us favor. Our gratitude comes from favor. Mm. I see what you're saying, because it's not in and of itself. Just go blindly. I mean, I guess this can be interpreted poorly, but like, just just go pray. Like, yeah, just go. But it's more of uh, asking, because even the ability of faith is a gift. Yep. We don't just, we're dead without uh, the ability to muster up our own faith. So he implants faith into us. And going back to uh, Genesis 3.15 in the Bible, that's the first time the gospel is explained, proclaimed. And it's by God explaining it immediately after his creation fell. That's right when the gospel is explained with the, uh, the, the serpent's head getting crushed. Yeah. And we've, and so, and I can even get further into this and I won't get too technical or too much in the weeds. And y'all, you kind of see this and we may have an episode later on in future seasons, future episodes on the Sabbath and the Sabbath in Genesis two, three, where the Lord rested and, and sanctified the Sabbath and made it holy. It's almost like presenting Adam 
saying, okay, God's resting. Rest is coming. There is rest. You have rest in Christ's coming. He obviously fails the mandate, so he doesn't get that rest. And then the uh, gospel in Genesis 3.15 says, no, the rest is still coming. The rest presented when God sanctifies the Sabbath and makes it holy, and he himself rests. It is represented again in Genesis 3.15 by saying, the seed to come will earn that rest for you. And so we're still waiting. We're still, we have that rest guaranteed right now because of the covenant of grace. We're still waiting for that rest to come fully. Yeah. And I think another thing that uh, covenant theology does a good job on is it really does a good job at clarifying the law gospel distinction. Yep. yep. Um, it just makes it really clear that like um, you are, under your own, uh, the way that you, you can satisfy God based on the law and covenant works, you know? So if it's either on you or Jesus's obedience to the covenant of works. And so, yeah. And like we've had before, if you don't have the law gospel distinction, invariably you have a gospel, you have a, you have a law like gospel or you have a gospel like law where your law is not very law-like because it doesn't give you a very good gospel or your gospel is not very gospel and it's a law. So you, if you don't have the distinction, invariably you have some sort of weird unity between the two versus law pointing you towards the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, but also gospel points you back to the law. It's not just when you're in the gospel that yeah. you forget about the law, but you, you can now look to the law and says that no longer condemns me. That shows me who Christ is, who like who he is in this perfection. And I can now follow the law, no longer condemning me, but pointing me back to Christ again. Yeah, yeah. When you're in Christ, sin should just should humble you. Yep, totally. So yeah. Um, so I think without that law gospel distinction, like you're saying, you're either falling in the category of one extreme progressive Christianity, which I think we had that it's great episode with yeah, with yeah, or uh legalism. Yep. Yeah. You know. it's, a, it's, it's, it's legalism rebranded. Yep. So um, with the covenant of works section, something really good that he pointed out in here was that Genesis never calls this arrangement with Adam a covenant. And a lot of people that are non-covenant theologians, they, they make this point. They're like, Oh, covenant's not coming out and saying that it's with Adam. But if you read Hosea six, seven, mm-hmm says, like Adam, Israel transgressed the covenant. Yeah. Pointing back to what was going on. Mm-hmm. Adam's relationship to God was covenantal in nature. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was a probationary tree testing Adam. And then uh, he goes on to say, Adam and Eve would be God's treasured people in paradise in his presence if they kept the covenant. That's at the heart of each covenantal arrangement. Yeah. So, so we, had, we had other scriptures confirming what we see in genesis 3 and you get the same kind of thing in the psalms towards the middle-ish of the psalms uh, and also towards the end of the psalms you get a psalm that talks about a covenant made with david because the the word covenant doesn't exist in second samuel 7 we see the covenant that the lord makes through nathan when nathan talks to to david and says i will build my temple here you won't build a temple you won't build a house for me but my your sons shall be on the throne and there's one who's coming who will be eternally on the throne. We don't see the word covenant there. We do get a couple of Psalms that talk about the covenant made with David. 
So we get scripture interpreting itself, just like Hosea 6, 7 interprets um, Genesis 3 or Genesis 1 for us. Uh, we get, yeah, we get very similar things. Yeah. I hope I, I didn't confuse people after I was mentioning that. Um... Not of, yeah, works of the law. The law is not of faith, which is Genesis or um, Galatians 3, 10 to 14. And there's yeah. five or no, there's four difference, I believe, um, quotes from the Old Testament. All are from either Deuteronomy or, Le- or Leviticus. Um, and so you get all these th- four that are law heavy. And Paul contrasts living by the law, trying to obey by the law and obeying by faith. Mm-hmm. So the gist is with uh, covenant of works. Uh, Adam was a public person and he was the federal head of the whole human race, the representative of all that came after him. So I know this is probably good to kind of maybe uh, soak in because it, I think a lot of people struggle with like, well, how do, how am I born into sin? I didn't do anything. Yeah. Why is it, why is it my technically fault when it was actually Adam's fault? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't do I didn't take it or even so like, what is an apple or what does a tree have to do with sin? So why, like, why is that a, why is that a big deal? But yeah, that's, that's where Paul comes in Romans five. And again, interprets this for us. We don't have to make up a new interpretation based on scripture. We can look at Paul new Testament authors when they're pointing back to these things like that. Well, that's what it means. Cause that's what Paul said. Um, he's inspired as those scriptures are inspired. And he tells us because Adam was what we call, like you said, the covenantal head, he represents humanity in his fall, we both fall, but when we have fallen in him, that's, that is both sin. But when we sin ourselves, it's not a different sin than the one that we were born in Adam. It's the sinful nature being played out in us that we are sinning according to our nature, which that can also get confusing. Well, like, well, when you're Christians, you still sin, right? It's like, we, yes, we do still sin, but our covenant head has changed. Our covenant head has changed from Adam and it's been changed to Christ. We've been given yeah. righteousness, perfect righteousness, but we are still in this sin cursed world. So we're still going to display fruits of this world, even though we've been purchased, we've been redeemed, we've been placed under new covenant head, that being Christ. That's, and so I know that's, that sometimes gets confusing of, well, what, why can't we, I just be perfect as a Christian? It's because we still live in that Romans eight world right before um, the golden chain of redemption in Romans eight, uh, thir- 28 to 30, when I think Romans 8.21 talks about this, this sin-cursed land that's still groaning for redemption that we're still living in. When it goes back to, well, why is Christian, why is Christians do we keep saying, or what happens when we sin? Well, it humbles us. So I think, kind of thinking outside the box, if we just magically stop sinning, I think, it, I think inevitably we would start creating pride and puff ourselves up because then we're, we're not constantly being reminded to look towards Christ. Well, you see, there's a place that's coming. Where we're not going to sit anymore. Yeah. And that's, that, and that, yeah, and that, and again, that's, that is the heavenly realm where sin cannot exist. Um, and we're recording this on a Monday and tomorrow we're, we're talking to Dr. Beal on the temple presence. And he actually kind of expands this a little bit where heaven is temple. That's, that is God's perfect temple. And in God's perfect temple, there is no sin. Right. And right now we're living in this sin-cursed world where the temple, in a sense, is the church. We see God's presence in Christ in the church. 
Well, again, we're also living in this dual citizenship world. We live in, in God's kingdom, which is represented by Christ's, what we call his mediator role, his, his redemptive role in the church, but also his kind of his reign over the world, which is still sin cursed. So the reason why we sin is a, because we want to, we want to sin in this world. We still have a sinful nature. It's natural to us. Yeah, it's natural to us, but we have dual citizenship, both in heaven. So we've been purchased. We have perfect obedience, perfect righteousness, not in ourselves, but given to us. And that's the big distinction is we're not the ones who obeyed. Therefore we still have like our natural propensities to sin. The one who obeyed comes from outside of us gives us the record of obedience supernatural yeah so yeah he's that literally supernatural super meaning yeah. outside of or, or, or abundantly yeah. um comes supernaturally outside of us which is why we still sin because that obedience didn't come from me that obedience didn't come from you so that means we still have this sinful nature though we have the record of perfect righteousness which perfect righteousness and perfect obedience again thinking back to the covenant of works that's the requirement for heaven. Yep. So I think all too often, and this is also that I think covenant theology helps us with too. And this is actually made clear to me by Tim Keller reading one of his books. Um, entrance into heaven is not faith. Entrance into heaven is perfection. Faith yep. grabs perfection and makes it yours. But faith is not the entrance into heaven. Perfection is. Which is why we need this crucial distinction to know where did our law breaking come from and where did our perfection come from? Yeah. Do you have, per, do you have uh, faith in yourself trying to be perfect or do mm-hmm. you have faith in the one that was perfect and mm-hmm. is perfect Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, what's interesting too is um, when they, when, when everything's said and done and we're in the kingdom of heaven, it will be better than Eden because even in yep. Eden, even though before the fall, Adam and Eve still had the ability to sin yep. because they did sin. So it was a probationary probationary test um, where they sin could leak in and tempt them and they fell. Yeah. And if you guys are wondering, like, what on earth is probationary test? Think of like literally think of a criminal out on probation after jail where there's still there's this, still this time period between when they could go back to jail and then when they're free from jail. It's relative to the same concept the probation was in a very real sense, God testing Adam, will you obey my rule? Will you obey my law? And it was a shortened whatever time period where he was not tempted, but he was given the ability, the true ability to choose between good and evil. And he was the only one who had the true ability to choose between good and evil. And obviously we know he, he chose evil. Yeah. And then this section in covenant of grace, um, which because we are no longer capable of fulfilling those obligations because yeah. uh, Adam disobeyed to gain salvation by works is now a moral and metaphysical impossibility. So we need literally the gift, the true gift of grace, yep. which is the covenant of grace and the Westminster confession of faith talks about it in uh 7.3 westminster confession yeah, of faith. chapter 7 section 3 mm-hmm. and then um this is the section actually uh 
earlier, I might've confused people about where I start talking about with grace, how the administration's listed out, uh, go to, he kind of walks right through him. We see God's promise to Noah and the rest of humanity through him. Yeah. And a covenant of preservation whereby God graciously promises to maintain the orderly workings of his creation. And that Abraham, the nations that will come, promises to Moses, to the nations he was leading, and a covenantal arrangement full of law, but also replete with a gracious sacrificial system and rich messianic foreshadowing. Then David with the, his royal uh, descendants and then covenant king, uh, with the covenant kingdom guaranteeing a king would come in the line of David. And then finally, new covenant predicted in Jeremiah 31. So how could you wrap up talking about Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament is already talking about a new covenant. Yeah, and it's well, it's not a new covenant necessarily. It's 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 the covenant that was already made, that covenant of grace that he's saying. And we see Jeremiah 31. We see it's promised and fulfilled truly, but in part by Christ, but fully fulfilled in the glory to come in heaven, because right now we still need teachers and we don't have the law written on our hearts perfectly, but we have obedience um, credited to us, but all these being administrations of the covenant of grace. Um, and especially so when we look at Noah, part of Noah was the covenant of grace, but not the whole of Noah. So if you guys listen to Dr. Um, Van Pelt's episode on the Noahic covenants, part of that was common grace. So the, um, the keeping the world not free from sin, but keeping the world preserved um, in a state where sin was not as rampant as it possibly could be outside of this, of this administration, but it's preservative for repentance for those who are still under the covenant of works. Um, but it's also holding the earth towards the end of judgments um, for glory for believers and destruction for non-believers and not destruction, like annihilation where they're gone, but destruction in the sense that they get their true verdicts. So, yeah, just talking about more about Jeremiah 31, because it's such a important verse talking about the new covenant. Um, it actually matches up with Hebrews eight in the new Testament. Yep. Um, yeah, and, the same exact stuff in mm -hmm. Hebrews eight. So Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 say that in the new covenant, the law will be written on the heart and no one will have to tell his brother to know the Lord. That's what a uh, quote from uh, Kevin DeYoung in this chapter of Obama 595. And uh, so how we see this is the covenant has moved from the external to the internal. What does that mean? You know? Yeah. So it's, it's talking and we've, we've had a, We've had a conversation about this um, before. We talked about new covenant theologies and how reformed Presbyterian covenantal interpretation of scripture reads Jeremiah 31, not in contrast, <clears throat> but we, how we read it differently from our Baptist brothers and sisters. Well, they, they will see Jeremiah 31 as fully fulfilled, the internal aspect of it fully fulfilled today. And that's why you have just believers, because just believers who are baptized are not infants of, of believing um, parents within the covenant community, but believers who come into the church, uh, who've grown up in the church, whatever it may be, um, they're given the sign, or they would probably wouldn't really call it a sign, but they're given 
baptism as a external profession of their internal faith. And it really does go back, <coughs> go back to Jeremiah 31, where they see fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 as the spirit renews us, um, makes us like Christ or makes us uh, want to choose God in, in whatever aspect that may be. Um, and so they see there being no internal external distinction. It, like you can nuance that a little bit more than I just did. And I know some people might disagree with that, but that's a very general broad sweep of it where there technically is no internal external. And they would say, and, and, and in some sense, we would agree that the internal external distinction is between the elect and non-elects, which we, we would agree with that as well. But we'd also see internal and external especially as it relates to Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah 31, the fullest fulfillment of it possible is in glory. And so we don't know yet. Uh, we still need mediators. We don't have the law fully run on our hearts in the sense that we don't need someone to teach us. We have pastors today. We have pastors who teach us the word. And so there's still our mediators to this day. And then when we go into glory, we won't have that mediator. We'll be with our mediator. And so we'll hear it from the very person himself, the second person of the Trinity, without a mediator. Yes, he is our mediator, but it'll be without any mediation. We'll be without Moses, be without Abraham, be without any of those covenantal figures throughout redemptive history. And so we see the internal-external distinction, the internal distinction being those who've truly been purchased by the Spirit, who've truly been given the obedience and righteousness of Christ by the Spirit, and external, they still associate with the external. The external is the visible church. The external is, is the assembly that we are all part of, where we can see externally, okay, these people are in the church, but those who have not yet professed Christ, they're not in the internal community. And then those who have professed Christ with their lips, but do not believe in Christ in their heart, they're still in the external, but not in the internal. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's why we can say we can have members so infants as members of the church, communicant members who have not yet professed faith, where they're still part of the external community, but they're not part of the internal community. And again, a lot of this just comes down to like our judgments. We're not saying like we know for sure, infallibly, who is part of the internal. We can say who's part of the external. Mm -hmm. They're part of our membership roles. We can see them. They're physical beings. But we we can say <coughs> with... with um, with the best judgment possible, this person's part of the internal covenant community, but we don't know that absolutely positively for sure. And so we, we actually share that with our Baptist brothers and sisters, where both of us don't know for sure. The infant who's baptized into the church, we mm. don't know if they'll be part of the internal community. Mm. Even somebody who professes faith outside of the church and then comes in through baptism, again, we still don't know whether or not they're truly believers. And we're not saying you have to work for your salvation in that sense, but it is a judgment call. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, <clears throat> we can recognize who is externally, like you said, part of the covenant community because we've seen them baptized. We know they've been baptized yep. um, and that. And so past that is more of uh, internally, uh, whether uh, the Holy spirit, God knows for sure they are one of, uh, his children or not. And only yeah. he knows who's, who's truly part of the elect. But like he said, anybody that professes faith and takes communion, we just, we essentially um, take their word for it, that they are a uh, believer. 
Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Which we share that again with our Baptist brothers and sisters, but again, it depends on, um, yeah. How do we define these things? What, what sign are we looking for? What sign do people take to be part of this? Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of factors that, that play into this. Mm-hmm. Here's another really good quote by uh, Kevin at the bottom of 595. Uh, the new covenant is new in comparison to the ceremonies of the Mosaic law, but it is nothing more and nothing less than the full embodiment of all that was promised in, to the patriarchs, to Moses and to David. Yeah, which is a good quote. And that, that goes into the distinction we were talking about earlier with the substance of the covenants and the administration of the covenant. The substance never changes. The substance has always been Christ. Okay. It's always been Christ's finished work. And that's what that's what Kevin, um, Dr. DeYoung, Reverend DeYoung, whatever we want to call him, um, that's what he's talking about in this quote, that it was truly pronounced and promised with the patriarchs, with Abraham, with Adam, with Moses, all of those. And Paul says that in Romans 4 and in Galatians too. Paul talks about in Romans 4 explicitly that Abraham believed in Christ and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's reading Genesis 15, 6 and saying that righteousness credited to him by God, um, where Abraham believed the promise, Abraham's actually believing in Christ. And that's not Paul saying, well, he's believing in a future potential thing to come. Maybe that's not really actually there, but it's it's um, prophesied later on. Paul is saying, no, what happened there was he believed in Christ. He may not have had the name of Christ, but he certainly knew the office. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about with the Mosaic law. And yeah, and the Mosaic, I mean, like, that's again, like we can look at the apostles and we don't have to come up with our own interpretation of these events. We don't have to come up right. with our own t- interpretation of, of Old Testament law when Paul talks about the law as a pedagogue or as a, as a disciplinarian, but the disciplinarian that always pointed them to a redeemer to come who would make this law fulfilled and obsolete in their lives, that he would take upon this burden. And Paul, again, tells us they knew this. They knew they were under a schoolmaster. They knew they were being pointed to something greater. Um, and so we have to take the New Testament references, the apostles' interpretation really seriously when we have these conversations about was Christ truly presented to Moses, to David, to all these patriarchs? And we say, yes, he was. So that's how they were prescribed to worship God during that time through their faith. Yeah, yeah. So that's they had faith that the sacrifice that they were offering up, A, was according to God's um, pre-planned purpose. We told them, this is the sacrifice I want you to make. So he made them, or so the people made them. And as they were sacrificing, they knew this had to be happening on a consistent basis. And so that reminds them, like when we had Dr. Waters on to talk about the covenant of works in the New Testament, um, he talks about a lot of this stuff too, again, with Paul's interpretation, especially in the book of Galatians, <clears throat> where Paul says this, that these constant reminders and the preacher to the, to the Hebrews he also talks about this, this constant reminder of all these sacrifices going to the temple and being burned up, whole burnt offering, them tasting the food, them eating what the, the priests or what they had, what they had offered. Um, it tells us, the preacher tells us explicitly, Paul tells us explicitly that when they're doing these things, they're doing them by faith. They're doing them. They're not trusting in the sacrifice itself. And Hebrews tells us that specifically. 
says they trust in the one to come who's going to make these sacrifices obsolete. Yeah, they're, it's not an empty practice. They are yeah. doing something with meaning. It's not an empty practice, nor is it a practice that's an end in and of itself. It wasn't right. just the sacrifice. It was they had the sacrifice and they knew it was pointing to something else. And they knew in a very true sense, the substance of the sacrifice was the thing coming to. It represented the thing coming in a very mm. real way, though in a temporary and an incomplete way. Mm. Incompletes, for those who are listening, doesn't mean different. Incomplete means it's not the fullness of what's to be revealed later on. Yeah. So that's why we can say these sacrifices are incomplete pointers, but they still are the substance of Christ. Yeah, they, they weren't being saved uh, just by the sacrifice in and of itself. It yeah. was the faith exercised through the sacrifice, showing that they had belief and trust in Yahweh, telling them what to do. Yeah, and David says this again in Psalm 51. He says, you do not desire in sacrifices or I would sacrifice. It's talked about the prophets all over the place. Um, but then what's also interesting is in Psalm 51, in that famous, like that sin psalm where David is is um, is repenting of his sin, and it's very obviously with his <clears throat> killing Uriah and taking Bathsheba, um, he actually talks about two sacrifices. He talks about one that's this guilt offering, and then another one that doesn't actually have a corresponding sacrificial element and so you can tell what David's thinking is he knows there's one sin, the, the killing sin, that he can't atone for. And so something has to come to atone for that sin. And so one of the sacrifices that he makes um, has a corresponding um, animal substitute, and one of the sacrifices doesn't. And so it's kind of meant to point us to, again, again something's coming that is going to take on the burden that David knows he can't take on himself. Mm-hmm. Which is why, again, we're talking about this covenantal structuring of scripture. If we don't have some of these structures in place, it's, it's not impossible. It's difficult to see some of these connections that are rather obvious when you look at a covenantal structure of scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our sin is so great against a great God that it requires the perfect sacrifice of God. Somebody has to bleed, and God has to bleed. And that's what it was pointing towards towards Jesus is Jesus bled on the cross. Yep. And actually this popped in my head is uh, this goes back to um, Cain and Abel that the sacrifices that they brought to Yahweh, only one of them was sufficient. Mm-hmm. Right. And one, one of them was uh, things that didn't bleed. And yeah, well, yeah and- one of them, was made and oh, we're given the interpretation by Paul. One of them is one of them is made by faith, and one of them is not made by faith. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't necessarily the sacrifice itself. It was the it was the the faith that appropriated the the um the action from God. Isn't that interesting? So Cain and Abel, that same explanation is pointing towards the Mosaic law yeah. of sacrifices, which points forward to Christ. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing when we read through Genesis. When people sacrifice in Genesis, your first question should be, how do they know to sacrifice? Oh, yeah, true. Because the law hasn't been given yet. 
And so when we read through Genesis, we're like, oh, because it's so easy for us to just like read through the narrative. We read Abraham making an altar, sacrificing. We read about Cain and Abel sacrificing. We read about a sacrifice in the garden with Adam and Eve. We read about more sacrifices than Noah. Or we're like, but Leviticus isn't a thing yet. They haven't, God hasn't come down with the Ten Commandments to Moses with the finger. And it's because the person, Moses, who's writing, and then we have likely probably Joshua or somebody else who takes the writings of Moses and, and makes them into a coherent system. We can tell he's structuring it covenantally because they're like, how else do they know about these sacrifices? And what it seems like this, the scripture is being molded around these sacrifices that it's giving the Israelites a context to understand, okay, I see why they're sacrificing. I see why they're doing this because they're looking towards the law again, like you said, which is looking towards Christ. And not, and to take it back even further, the very first sacrifice was uh, provided by Yahweh in uh, putting clothing on Adam and Eve after they fell. Yep. Yeah. And he kills, what does he kill? He kills animals. Yeah. And that's precisely what happens in the sacrificial system. He kills them and he covers them. And so Christ died uh, for us on the cross and he, his righteousness covers us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, we see this, yeah, again, prefigured where they sin grace is given to them and not some weird random grace where he's like, Oh, I'm not going to kill you. No, he actually does kill something places that killed thing on them and says, this is a sign that I have not killed you. I'm going to place my covenants promise on top of you. That's going to remind you because like they don't have extra pairs of clothes. They're not going to like go over to their wardrobe, open up their wardrobe and grab another pair of clothes Mm-hmm. They probably, I mean, we were making speculation, but they're, they're probably wearing that, what, what the Lord puts on them. That's what they wear. And so they're constantly reminded of their sin because of the sacrifice made that's on their body now. Wow. Amen. Um, and then uh, going to the page, top of page 596, uh, Kevin uh, talks about one of our good friends, our Scott Clark. And he yep. says, our Scott Clark has helpfully summarized the new covenant as promising four things. Um, would you be able to quickly just, you could probably explain this a lot bit better than me. Uh, the four things here um, that are listed. Yeah. Name out the four things so people hear it. Immutable covenant, interior piety, immediate knowledge, and iniquity forgiven. Yeah. So this is, it's um, my, my assumption is he's getting from Clark's recovering the reformed confessions i don't have the book in front of me but i'm guessing that's what the footnote comes from um knowing a little bit about clark's work or just some of his his other postings well he talks about um the new covenant immutable so was the abrahamic covenant yeah and yeah immutable yeah that's you can you can kind of you can kind of interchange the a word that our audience may know is unconditional mm. immutable means doesn't like doesn't change there is no change Mutable means it's possible for, for change. You put the M in front of it, it means you can't do it. So there's, there is no change. The, the, the promise given to Abraham is unchangeable because it's unconditional. Um, but technically, it's conditional when we read in Genesis 15 because it's conditional not on Abraham's side, but it's conditional on the Lord's side. The Lord takes on the stipulations of the covenants, which is effectively like saying it's unchangeable, it's unconditional, it's going to happen. So that's, that's, where, that's where the immutable covenant comes from and when he talks about Abraham as well. Mm, okay. 
He says the new covenant boasts of an interior piety. Uh, so does the covenant throughout the Old Testament. God promises to circumcise the hearts of his people. The psalmist often speaks about the law on his heart. Nothing new about the internal uh, religion of the heart. Yeah. So it's, and this can, this can get maybe confusing for those who are like, well, piety, you're thinking pious, you're thinking godly, you're doing, you're doing godly things. And we spent a long time on this episode talking about how we're not godly and we are saved despite and in our sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Romans five talks about this while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. And so we, we get that, but it's also kind of also the name of our podcast is we, yes, we are, we are sinners, but th- through and from the obedience of Christ given to us, our gratitude does result in godly living and not godly living, not godly living, for or towards Christ's obedience for us to get it more of it. It's no, we already have the fullness and perfection of it. Therefore we live godly lives. Kind of like a James two thing where James two talks about faith without works is dead. He's not saying if you don't have works and have faith, your faith isn't very good. He's saying they're linked in a, in a way that you can't break it. So if you have faith, you're going to have works. The faith produces works. That's just what it does. Um, it is a consequence of works. Mm-hmm. Works is not the works doesn't produce the faith. The faith produces the works. And so that's there we go. That's where you can say that interior piety stuff, where because we have Christ's righteousness, it both gives us an obedient, perfectly obedient record, but it also makes us obedient. We also do obedient things because of it. That's truly giving, getting rest in Christ, knowing that you're you're love and your assurance is secure um and you can rest and have joy mm-hmm. in in being a part of his family rather than um back in my roman catholic days being like i'm only saved as uh i'm only as good as my last hail mary you know That's it's right, like yeah. well now and the, and my world's been flipped now it's like now i know i'm concretely saved and so you can work out works not as uh, um, not as a law to try to save you, but as a law of gratitude. Yeah, that's and that's and I'm sure too. Those of us who've grown up in kind of the the broadly evangelical church, where it tends to be, if I don't have the desire to read my Bible enough, or if I didn't give five bucks to the homeless guy in the corner of the street, or Um, if I miss church this week or miss Bible study, like whatever it may be, we feel like we have to make up for it the next week. We have to get like back on the good side. We feel like we're, we're off the boat a little bit. Our our spirituality is a little bit off, um, versus seeing a covenantal side is we have already been purchased and therefore our gratitude and obedience flows from our purchased, our purchase, our purchased, um, nature, our purpose, our, our purchased new identity that is now given to us um which also means like we're not and this is going to sound maybe we're like we're not always going to be on fire for the lord we're not always going to be like our prayer life is not always going to be fantastic our evangelism is not always going to be fantastic but that's not where we look towards for our assurance not towards our external actions we look towards christ who purchased us and that gives us the fuel for these external actions yeah. And, and I think those seasons where you feel like you're in a drought and not feeling 
close and snuggly to the Lord. It's just like, just admit to God, like, Hey God, I'm blowing it. Um, but it's not about me. I know my assurance and security in you and, and, yeah. and, and there might be like thing. a season where we're sitting in a more consistent way or not looking to the Lord. And so that's like, that's absolutely true, but that doesn't put us in any different position than we were before that season. It means, yeah, we have sinned. And so kind of that little window has been marred. We can't see it as well, but that doesn't mean that he has not purchased us before that. It just means that we have fallen away a little bit. We've, we've lost sight, but we have the righteousness still. And so we can, and that's also when Paul talks about putting on Christ. Um, Colossians talks about this towards like the beginning middle list of Romans talks about this. Philippians has a little bit of this as well. Putting on Christ doesn't mean you don't already have Christ on. Putting on Christ means we're recognizing and reminding ourselves of our status as Christians. That we're not trying to say, I messed up this week. I have to go back into the spirit. I have to get back into the Lord. I have to get back into communion. Paul is saying, no, you already are. You have this new identity that's already true of you. Therefore, you put on Christ, reminding yourself that you are already clothed in Christ. So it's almost like you've been looking up so long that you forget, oh, I'm already clothed. Like I already have the righteousness of Christ. That's more of a reminder than it is to do something that's already true of you. That's true. Once, once your old man is... Uh not old man, like his age, like, but your old sinful flesh in Adam personhood is nailed to the cross. Uh, it's just more of you're explaining a daily reminder to that. That's a reality. And you can yeah. keep putting on the righteousness of Christ, just like Adam and Eve got clothed mm-hmm. in the garden. It was a reminder. Yeah. That's again, it's not to say again, as, as covenantal theologians, it's not to say that we don't have that mortal flesh still on us. We still do. Um, it's not literally saying we have, we have something on top of us that's the righteousness of Christ, but we're under new regulations. We're under a new governor. We're under a new king. We have somebody who's reigning over us who does not lose us, and we have his record instead of the one who came before him. So uh, Clark's third point was immediate knowledge so what that really does is it moves us from a national faith to a personal faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's hey, so this one can get more into the weeds, but maybe if I can if I can place it concisely, we, we do have a corporate faith where as the body of believers, we profess one Christ and we are in the corporate community um, under Christ, but we also have new hearts individually that Ezekiel 36 and 37 talks about the Jeremiah 31 and 33 talk about a lot of these things that are true individually, but also show up corporately. And so we, we each of us have the spirit where again, it tended to be corporate in the old Testament. It tended to be the spirit would fill the temple in a corporate manner, or the priest couldn't go into the, to the Holy of Holies because the glory of the Lord was dwelling there. Um, individual kings would have the spirit within um, the historical books. Individual judges would have the spirit. They would represent the people. So their spirit investedness represented the people versus now each one of us individually has the spirits. We have the spirit because we're all the priesthood of believers. And it's also true corporately. We profess and under the dominion of the spirit as well. 
yeah, we don't need to be under a theocracy um, anymore, Mm-mm. you know, and also um, the mediator that Moses, the Levitical class and the aeronautic line of priests pointed towards has already been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, <clears throat> pretty much the entire point of Hebrews five and Hebrews seven, mm-hmm. uh, which both of them talk about the priesthood was not eternal because each priest died. Each priest had a, had a term limit. And especially Melchizedek, who was not technically a, a priest. We see him in Genesis 14, um, whom the preacher of the Hebrews is pulling from. But he points to an eternal order, again, pointed back to Psalm 110 that has the order of Melchizedek, which is, again, prophesying about the Lord. And the Lord being the priest who, yes, died, but was resurrected and now never dies. He's the priest that all dying priests look to the priest that no longer dies. What we should be really thankful for is this mediator, God, uh, Jesus has been revealed to us for the last 2000 years incarnate. Mm-hmm. He's I'm still incarnate now. He's that's the crazy thing. We yeah. have a human mediator, human divine, a fully divine, fully human mediator right now. There's a human priest interceding for us which is again what hebrews talks about a priest has to be human it cannot be fully it cannot be divine in the sense that it's just divine it must be human it must be a priest it must be a representative that can truly represent the people so like you said yeah we have an incarnate still an incarnate in the sense that he is now fully human fully divine where he was not fully human pre-incarnation yeah, that and uh, just for however long it took to uh, write and be in the Old Testament era, they were always looking forward to Christ. And um, the last 2000 years, we know who that person is that they've been pointing to forward in the yeah. Old Testament. So yep. I think to be grateful for that, that yeah. I, I don't want to say that we have it easier or easier to go down that route, but it's just like, it's nice that we know who the old Testament has been pointing towards. Mm-hmm. I think all the people that in the old Testament that are in heaven right now are like, that's great. Like they know that they're cheering on for the church right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had faith in the same mediator. We can just now name him and see the fullness of his ministry. They saw it in part and we see it in whole. Mm-hmm. And then iniquity forgiven. Um, is, is, is Clark's last point. And that is, uh, looks at uh, Hebrews 8, 12 and uh, Psalm 32. Yeah. And many other, it's just God's people in the Old Testament enjoyed the blessing of having their trespasses atoned for and their sins pardoned. And then I think it's just going back into more of what you're saying is just fulfilled in the revelation. Yeah, and of this, Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is a big thing that covenant theology plays. It's both, it, it really plays hard on personal assurance because of the covenantal and legal nature of the covenant of works of the covenant of grace. Yeah. And just kind of to wrap up this, this uh, longer episode with the shorter chapter, um, uh, Kevin just kind of ends it with talking about Hebrews 10 and specifically to Hebrews 10, 26 to 29. And that uh, just a reminder about how covenant, is a legal relationship. So you can find 
either concrete understanding of that relationship, stipulations, understandings. If uh, you break that legal relationship, the curses or the penalties, and on the other side, that legal relationship assurance, what once you're bound in, you're legally bound by the creator of the universe. So that's pretty much how he wraps it up. And then he goes into relational theology for real people. And I think that's just kind of making it um, concrete. concrete and practical yeah so if you have anything else to wrap up i think that i think we covered about everything yeah so i mean that was and i love and we've we've already kind of harked on this before but if you don't have a legal contract you have nothing binding the two parties together so yes christianity's relationship yes we have a relationship with jesus absolutely that's those are those are totally true things but if those are not grounded in a legal contract, something that we broke, we have to have somebody come from outside, fulfill the obligations that we have fallen under that we could not fulfill on our own. And so when he comes from outside of us, he has to contract with us. And he contracts with us um, through the covenant of grace by him fulfilling the covenant of grace. So it's basically what I'm saying is if we don't have a contract, we don't have a relationship. And so we need this. And that, that, like you said, this helps us from our contractual obligations with Christ. It helps us live with others because we've been, we've been um, saint, we're being sanctified because we've been justified because we now have a right record. It's actually a joy to go talk to. And it's, it's, it's easy to say it's hard to do, but it's, it's actually, it's now a joy to live this out. It's a joy because the number one relationship we have that was once fractured has now been made right. And mm-hmm. we can live out of that right relationship and we can spread that right relationship. And I'm kind of using the, some of the language um, and for long explanation, we just finished recording with Dr. Beal. And so a lot of the stuff that he's says is going through my mind. You guys will have heard this this past Thursday. Um, and it's just, guys, this, this stuff is just so ridiculously practical. It's, some of this stuff is just so incredible that we have a creator who took on our legal failing on himself, fulfilled it and gave us life and give us life with others. Um, so with that said, Nick actually had this idea. Um, and I thought it was a great idea. I kind of had the idea, but I have to give the credit to, to Nick pretty much wholly on this one. Um, but he had the idea of, those we've had on season two and season three, we pitched them a question. And so Nick, if you want to kind of go through real quick before we end this episode out on what are they going to hear right after we finish? Oh yeah. So um, I think if this could work out because we don't know yet <laughs> as we're recording right this moment, we we're don't sure really happen. Yeah. So uh, the idea is, Hopefully we have some guests that we've had on that you've enjoyed listening to for the last couple seasons. And um, they would just quickly answer in a concise way, why covenant theology? Mm-hmm. And you could hear from them rather than us ramble along forever. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe we soften the, the, the ending of this season with them all kind of coming together and answering that for us. Yep. That would be exciting. So if it works out, uh, you'll right after this probably hear that. If it doesn't, um, I guess you and I will have to throw something together. <laughs> but um, yeah, I will say too. Uh, I guess one closing thing for me is just comment is that the 
I think this is just brought back to the legal contract of, of covenants goes back to our sin and disobedience to eternal perfect God is eternal punishment mm-hmm. um, because it's a major sin against a perfect God that's eternal. So our eternal, our punishment is eternal death um, and separation from God eternally. It's grace that it's through common grace right now that we're even able to live out a life and, and he's giving us a chance for repentance. Now, on the other end, if once you're grafted in as one of his ch- children uh, through justification, that eternal salvation is truly eternal. So then you're eternally with him. And then when uh, we'll be in heaven with him forever. Yeah. So hope you guys <coughs> enjoyed this episode. Um, next week, so on the 3rd of January, we're going to have a recap of season three. So we'll talk about some of the stuff that happened, the people we talked to, some of our top episodes. Um, so hopefully you guys enjoy that. And with the season three recap, even though we, we, we haven't yet announced what we're doing for season four, but you guys will hear what we're doing for season four and a break that we're taking throughout the month of January and February. And don't freak out that we're taking a break. We still have a plan what we're doing through our break so you can still listen to us so stay tuned for what we're doing so we hope to see you guys next week yep the first guest we've had on who will talk about the question what is covenant theology is reverend dr erwin ince who is both the pastor of grace dc presbyterian church director of the grace dc institute for cross-cultural mission and was just appointed the new MNA, which is the PCA Missions Branch Coordinator, Pro Tempore, effective September 1st, 2021. So let's listen to what Erwin has to say. Why covenant theology? Because God is a God who keeps covenant forever. It is through the lens of covenant theology that we see the depth and wonder of God's love in creation, in redemption, and in glory. It should not surprise us when we get to the book of Revelation that we hear our eternal life secured in covenant language. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Covenant theology Through this lens, we understand that we are his and he is ours in an unshakable bond that he will establish forever. My name is Gary Miller. I'm the principal of Queensland Theological College in Brisbane, Australia. Covenant theology is vital for the church because it enables us to see the glorious continuity in God's work across history Uh, for the sake of his glory as he gathers a people for himself whilst it also enables us to embrace the staggering new reality of what God has done for us in Christ and to integrate that with the whole sweep of God's redemptive work. This is Harrison Perkins. I'm a pastor at London City Presbyterian Church. I help teach systematic theology at Edinburgh Theological Seminary, and I help teach church history online for Westminster Seminary. Why is covenant theology important for the church? Well, it helps us understand the certainty of our good relationship with God because of the work of Jesus Christ, 
Second, it helps us read our Bible with greater clarity so that we know the whole scope of Scripture is about Christ and the gospel and our relationship with God in Christ. And thirdly, it helps us understand how the church is a community, a fixed body bound together in the Lord Jesus and why we need to be committed to one another and the things we do as a church. So that's why it's important for the church in my mind, and I hope those are helpful for others. Yo, this is Martin Velasquez with Reformed Raza Podcast, and the question is, uh, why covenant theology? Well, first of all, because uh, it makes sense of our Christian walk and the things that we do as believers. It makes sense that we are to raise up our children in the ways of the Lord because we are both under covenant, under the covenant of grace. And this is our duty, both uh, as parents and as children, to walk in the ways of the Lord. And uh, second, that it is most consistent framework that there is, theological framework that there is. Starting with the covenant of redemption between the Godhead, then the covenant of works in the garden, and then the covenant of grace from Abraham all the way to Jesus Christ. Hey, Peter and Nick, Scott Clark here from Westminster Seminary, California, the Heidelcast and the Heidelberg Reformation Association. Covenant theology is important because in the covenants of works and grace, covenant theology is the organizing principle of redemptive history. The one covenant of grace unifies all of redemptive history, and the covenants of works and grace are the outworking of the covenant of redemption made from all eternity between the Father and the Son. You just can't understand the Bible in part or in whole without covenant theology. Congratulations on season three. Are you looking for a Reformed Church in the Orange County, Santa Ana area? We'll be starting our study through the Book of Judges, as well as diving into Reverend Danny Hyde's Welcome to Reformed Church beginning weekly on December 2nd, which is a Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. If you'd like updates and information on joining our core group, email us at santaanareformed at gmail.com or head to either Guilt Grace Pod or Santa Ana URC on Twitter or find the link in the show notes to learn more. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on itunes yeah and you after you rate a review or instead of written review or doing everything all in once retweeting us on twitter liking us on twitter liking us on instagram following us on both of those platforms because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast these guests and most importantly the gospel the doctrines Uh, that these guests are are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian (laughs) theology. 
exactly yeah and you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um, our social media links it'll it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.